Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special Empire Podcasts. This one will focus on Marvel's biggest gamble to date, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's her 10th movie and I think it's a gamble we can all agree has paid off in spades. Otherwise, what are you doing listening to this madness? Join me today to discuss the film in all its quirky glory, Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. He is Groot. Dan Jolin. I am Groot also. Oh, uh, no, I didn't do it right. You were not. <laughs> I am also Groot. Uh, Dan wrote the Empire Review, the four-star Empire Review, but uh, Dan is not as up in it as certainly I am. I don't know. Ali, where do you stand on the Guardians of the Galaxy spectrum? I really, really enjoyed it. I had the feeling that afterwards I didn't immediately want to see it again. Some people walked out of Guardians of the Galaxy going, I can't wait to see it again. That was a lot of fun. I do want to see it again. Yes. I don't feel it has the depth, and you're going to persuade me. Uh-huh. That I'm wrong. I am. I don't think it has the depth that other recent Marvel movies have had. Yes. And I'm not saying they're all ginormous Olympic-sized swimming pools here, but I don't think it has quite the depth that I'm looking for. But yeah, I, I also, like I said on the main podcast, I wanted it just to be a little bit sharper. I wanted it to be a little bit funnier. It was still funny, but I think I fell in love with the trailer and that whole hooked on a feeling thing and the, and the finger being coming up, you know, the finger gun mm. thing that... Um, that Peter Quill does and then it gets blurred out and what a bunch of a-holes and it's not really as what a bunch of a-holes as as I thought it was going to be okay well we'll obviously discuss it in full uh, detail later on Uh, I've seen it twice now I'm going to go back and see it again I love this movie it has flaws but I love it despite those flaws and we'll discuss those flaws in greater detail soon uh, because uh, as is tradition with uh, an Empire Spoiler special before we get into the meat of the movie uh, we're going to hear from the man who made the movie James Gunn, co-writer and director. He came to London recently and he spoke to Ali. Enjoy. I'm joined here by James Gunn. We're on the Empire Podcast. You're listening to the Guardians of the Galaxy spoiler special. And it's a great honour to be with you, sir. I'm looking forward to uh, giving the audience some spoilers. Hooray! (laughs) Uh, Once they've seen it, of course. I I suppose my first question question is going to be one a lot of people are going to ask about this one, I think. In the collector's room, could you give us a guided tour? Because there's some amazing stuff in there. Well, uh, many people have, may look up to the right of the collector as they walk, as we first see the collector and we push in on him, and you will see a certain duck named Howard <laughs> that turns to look at the group. That's one of my favorite little things in the, the background. There is uh, the, the Slither uh Creatures from uh, my movie Slither are behind the the collector. Those those guys are pretty obvious. Uh, you have Adam Warlock's cocoon. You have all sorts of characters from other Marvel movies. Uh, you know, a, a dark, a, elf, a dark elf back there, uh, who's played by Doug Jones, who's a, one of our stunt guys, and also had the dark elf makeup on. Uh, so you had a, a lot of different uh, different guys in the in the background. I mean, that, that whole area is just a fascinating thing. I feel like if there's ever a theme park of Guardians of the Galaxy, that'll be one of my favorite rooms. My question for you about the Collector is, after what happens, what's happened to a lot of his stuff? Because that's some valuable things. And as an antiques collector myself... Well, I will say that the Collector... That is probably not the Collector's only museum. I think he probably has other spaces in which he keeps his incredibly vast collection. Um, so I don't think it's just his one collection. That's just his nowhere wing. Yeah, that's just one branch. That's just, yeah. I hope he's well. He seems to be passed out rather than dead. Yeah, he's not dead. Yeah. He's not dead for sure. A guy with that good hair doesn't die no, that no. easily. Yeah, he's got great Jim Jarmusch hair. <laughs> 
that what you said to the makeup guys? Did you just jamush him up? No, it actually, in the script, it described him as an uh, outer space Liberace, I believe. We have to ask the biggest, biggest question, which is kind of about the evolution of the script. Yeah. You came on board. Uh, you were writing this with your writing partner here on this, on this project. It wasn't just you. No, no, it was just me. <laughs> It was just me. <laughs> Once you came in, right? Well, there was a, there were scripts that existed before uh-huh. I came in, and then I just kind of rewrote the whole scripts. Or from top to bottom? Yeah. Wow. There's a couple little tiny things in there that were in the original script, but for the most part, it was rewritten totally. So what was it at the point you first met it? Um, where was the script? Yeah, where was that? There was a basic structure that existed that was, um, you know, there were guardians. Uh, it was basically the same five guardians they uh, at that point Gamora and Quill got into a fight which happens they went to prison they all the other ones met in prison Rocket Groot and Drax uh, they got out of prison and their things kind of went in a totally different direction than they go in our movie mm-hmm. a very different direction so that's that's the, the similarities are pretty much the beginning there was a, you know getting the orb of Morag that was in that that last version of the script but even that wasn't uh, was was a lot more general was it also a, a case of tone or because I get the impression oh yeah the is, tone is totally mine that yeah. was not there was there was not really any humor in the original drafts you know listen for me it's really about creating characters mm. who are real even if they're raccoons or trees and I think that when you do that it sort of naturally leads itself to uh, humor as soon as I you mention raccoons and trees I want to ask you about not the credit sting, but the one that we see just before the credits roll. Yeah. Whose idea was it? That's a, that was mine. It's also in the script. Amazing. And a little little spoiler for the audience is that tree dancing is me. That's me. I'm motion, not motion capture, but I'm motion referenced. And that's 100% me dancing. That is the and best I, I, thing. I can't remember who it was, but one of, my, one of my, who was it that saw it? And they're like... I said, that was me. And they said, I knew that was you because I've seen you dance. And that's exactly what you dance like. And I was like, hmm. I, I love that that was in the script. Look, I've, I've finished the script, guys. Um, and there's a very important bit at the end that we need to get right. <laughs> I need a dance. <laughs> well, honestly, that was supposed to be like either mid credits or end credits. Mm-hmm. But when we showed it to the test audience, they loved it so much. We're like, we don't want people walking out and missing this thing. So we put it right there after the uh, you know Guardians thing. You also have a James Bond reference at the end, which I loved. The Guardians of the Galaxy will be back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that is, that is pure Kevin Feige. He has balls of steel, and he decided to uh, we, we. You know, honestly, the way that came about is we had the the, the spaceship fly off. I want you back. The Jackson Five song starts at a certain time, and Groot's dance started at a specific time of the "I Want You Back" song. And we had like, if we put if we put the the credit at the, I mean, if we put the Groot dancing at the very end in the place we wanted to put it, there was a space there before the song went to the right place and after it was at the right place earlier that we just had this empty space. And we're like, well, it'd be weird to put the end and then have something right after the end. So that was how, you know, we're like, what could we put there? And Kevin came up with uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy will return. And at this point, it's very unusual, not only in the way the credits things are positioned, because there's a bit of a tradition already now about how they work. We as press have not seen the final credits thing. Yeah. Would you mind doing me a personal favor? Oh, no. <laughs> Can I talk about that? Because this, this isn't obviously coming out until after the after the fact. So if you do me a favor, I'd love to know personally. Oh, sh- oh shit. Uh, oh, can't say that. You can. This oh. is exactly that kind of podcast. 
This ain't the Beeb. I can't. I can't talk about it. I can't. No way. I can't. I can't. Yeah. I'll talk about it way later, but I can't talk about it now. <sighs> All right. Can you do me another favor then? When it does come out, mm-hmm. will you talk to us about it and let us know? I will talk to you about it then. Oh, yeah. You're very yeah. kind. I will. <laughs> well, then my idea was, because I waited right till the very end, right? I waited till right I know, the very end. and I feel so bad about that. And every time I've gone to a screening of the movie, uh, I've wanted to go up ahead of time and say, just so you guys know, there is going to be a tag at the end of the movie. However, we're saving it for the audience that goes to see the movie on opening day because we don't want it spoiled for them. Is it because it's a such a big plot development it no it's really just because we don't want it spoiled by mm. the press and the preview audiences that see it ahead of time you know for people who are going to pay money on the opening day yeah and b it's also just about you know i think it's nice to give the audience who are paying t- you know money for a ticket um on the opening day to give them something special sure. that no one else has had yeah here's to that my my in my head, I decided I, I'd worked out that Nathan Fillion had, was the big monster type creature in yes. the prison. Yes. Because somebody was like, you know, nudged me and said, I think. And I was like, oh, right. Well, that's, that's pretty good because the truth is, is that, you know, this big conversation was going on about who's Nathan Fillion playing yeah. in the movie? Is he Nova? Is he Cosmo? Is he this? Is he that? And we had had him in the 17 minute preview that. Tens of thousands of people saw all over the world, and yet nobody noticed that was Nathan Fillion's voice. So it was. I was going, you guys, Nathan's voice is in the scene that everybody has seen. He's not Nova. He's not Richard Ryder. Believe you me. How did you do the performance capture of someone having tendrils go up their nose? Uh, Nathan acted it out. I mean, we don't, yeah, we just, we just filmed it and Nathan acted it out and we have him on film, like grabbing his nose, just like the guy does and all I, that stuff. I can't wait for the Blu-ray to see that. Yeah. That's gonna I, be crazy. I hope we can see that. Yeah. That's pretty funny. And he's really funny doing it. My idea when I was waiting for the credits thing, cause I like to think, well, I wonder what it could be. I thought, what if Nathan Fillion were Peter Quill's dad and we saw him at the end that now, was well, the- let me. I know. You know Nathan Fillion's only about eight years older than Chris Pratt. I was wondering whether he could be playing something else, like whether he, you know, if he's already done that, maybe. I don't know why. Yeah, a lot of people have brought him up as Peter Quill's dad, but he's Mm. he's too young to be Peter Quill's dad. And I need to ask about ELO. You mentioned in the press conference today that there was a sequence that had an ELO track in it, and obviously, I mean, it was heartbreaking for me. I can't imagine what it was for you. As soon as he said yellow, I went, oh, my. I'm heartless when it comes to cutting my own movies down. Is that down. true? Oh, totally. I have no, uh, I'm not sentimental at all. The only thing that's hard for me about, you know, cutting uh, these, these, these movies down is when I have an actor who comes in and does a good job in a role and I, and I, and I have to cut them out of the movie because of some other factor other than their performance and that to me really sucks i mean there's a couple of actors who are they're still kind of in the movie but i had to write them letters two women who both did great jobs uh in the movie and yet i had to write them emails about a week ago saying just so you know when you go see the movie your dialogue oh, going 
Were they were they people in the bar in the boot say in the bar or yes um, yeah one of them is is this girl named uh, Merima who's one of my favorite people I met on the whole movie she plays the pit boss in the bar she was announcing the whole Orloni race as it was going on that Orloni and Fisaki are the names of those two creatures in there and that race was originally a lot longer and it was in a part of the movie we had to cut down the other girl was a girl uh, named Naomi who was at the end of the movie and just by rotten luck. Every little bit with her was cut out of the movie because we needed. We really tightened up the, the third act so that it's going bam, bam, bam and moving really fast throughout the whole thing. And she got some of her stuff cut, so that really sucked. And she was one of my favorites as well. It does happen. One person that didn't get cut and got a bit of a few gasps in the audience I was in, very nerdy audience, was Thanos. Mm. And we kind of knew, we knew that he was going to be a presence. Yeah. But I wasn't quite sure that we'd see him certainly face on so directly right there yeah josh brolin did a great job and he was motion captured he was the only thing in the movie that was actually motion captured and he came in how do you direct thanos you know what what do you say be more incredibly imposing (laughs) i don't exactly say it like that but i gave (laughs) i gave him a lot of notes you know but but he uh he's a really fantastic actor we liked the weight that josh had so we thought he would be really good for thanos and and uh, and then you know he'll continue to to play that character as long as we have him around, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. And and what about um, speaking of notes? Were there many you you've said, and it's again filled me with joy that you had so much room to play in this sandpit with this movie because yeah. almost there weren't the rabid fans, quote unquote, that there are for other Marvel properties. Were there many key notes on this film for you? Uh, from like well Kevin or whoever else well no no I mean Kevin worked with me very intimately especially during the the post-production process and Kevin's really a genius when it comes to structure and it was very he was very helpful to have when I was facing problems with editing the movie down to the right length um, and 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 being able to use the stuff that I liked and, and cut the stuff that wasn't working so well because sometimes you feel like you have to cut something you like a lot to you know you know uh, you know make the movie move at the right pace which you do have to do sometimes um, but uh, but Kevin was extremely helpful in that process but there weren't a lot of notes coming in about you know really does it have to be a raccoon. Yeah, nothing like yeah, nothing like that. They you know they would give notes like I think that's funny. I don't think that's funny. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And sometimes you, we we call it going to the island. You know, if if we're sitting in the room and it's me, Kevin, Victoria, and Lou, um, and somebody keeps saying they like something, they like something, you know, and then they uh, that nobody else agrees with them, then they say, okay, I'll go to the island. I'll go to the island. I kind of I kind of my secret is I kind of refuse to go to the island. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that in, in, in my office I'll use that a lot I hope they, they don't hear me saying that but I, I pretty much just refuse to go to the I pretty much don't Kevin doesn't really either we both kind of fight until we're dead <laughs> sign, sign of a passionate filmmaker yeah can we talk in a, in a, not to labor too much on the things that aren't in the film but I was fascinated about the relationship between Nebula and um, Gamora yeah there's we know more going on there is there anything you could illuminate us with? Well, you know, I think that really, uh, you know, Nebula is the Jan Brady of the Thanos world. She's the, you know, this, 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 the child who is, you know, less loved, you know, less, you know, uh, taken care of, less favored than, uh, than, than Gamora. And I, they have other, you know, siblings as well. So uh, she's just, I think she's a little sick of that. And I think that she was, you know, 
and much like Rocket, um, you know, torn apart and put back together and sort of recreated and, and abused in that way. And she's very angry about it, both at Thanos and at her sister. I think her and Gamora have a, a difficult relationship. There's one really great shot of her after she shoots uh, Gamora's ship. Uh, a shot of Karen where she's playing, Karen Gillan plays Nebula. And you can just see this. She's sad about it. You know, I don't think Nebula's an evil character. I think she's close to evil. I don't think she's evil. That's very interesting. I love that you kept her, though. Yeah. At the very end, you kept her. Was that always in the script? Or? Uh, um, No. That uh, was not always in the script, but she always survived. <laughs> ah, I see. Okay, she always survived. Yeah, she's all. Well, I, I, I want to see more of Nebula in the in mm. the, the world. You know, Nebula and Yondu are the two characters I think that. I, I also like Kraglin, which is my my who my brother plays, who's Yondu's uh, first mate, and so I'd like to see all those characters again. And I and I think we we if we do a sequel, we'll have a good chance of of seeing, you know. Some of them, at least. Yeah, please. And I, I, I've got two questions off the back of that. First of all, who came up with the mentally controlled dart? That is one of the scariest ideas. Yeah. I mean, it was played at times for laughs, but yeah. for me, that is just like a knitting needle through the eye. Yeah, that was me. Yandu wasn't in the original script, so I put Yandu in the script. The reason I put Yandu in the script is because you know people say, oh, you know, if you put him, you know, you changed him a lot from the comics. So why did you use him? And it's simply because I think that's the coolest superpower ever, um, and it's very different from other superpowers that exist. You know, in the you know, he controls it through you know whistling mostly, and the the men, that that's there's a, a hook up there between the implant in his brain and his whistling, and that's how he controls the arrow is through sound, um, and the that is what he does in the comics. So he you know he but he also has a bow in bow for some reason, which was doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I guess he you know. I guess that propels it, and then the whistling makes it, you know, change direction. Ah, okay. But I didn't, you know, I'm like, listen, he doesn't really need the bow. And it's interesting because it's such a small, slight thing, but it makes Yandu one of the more powerful people in the movie, mm. uh, which, is, which is interesting. He also gets to reveal it like a gunslinger. And, he's, and he is the Sergio Leone yeah. character in the movie. He is the Eli Wallach. He's the ugly, <laughs> which Rooker really is. <laughs> As anybody who's seen Walking Dead will tell you. Now, you mentioned the sequel. Obviously, you can't confirm anything, but you must have so many ideas for the sequel. What is it currently in, in the state of right now in your head? Well, it's, you know, there's general ideas for what the sequel is and where it goes and who's involved and what happens and what we find out about our characters. Um, so it's very general, and that could change. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll do, you know, sometimes you have ideas and you write them down and. They're too convoluted on paper. It's too many ideas for one thing or it's not enough ideas or whatever. And so, you know, that could easily change. But I, I know a lot about who these characters are, where they come from and where they're going. It is one of those movies that as you finish it, you go, but I've only just got to know them. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, that's why I'm excited by the possibility of creating a sequel because – because, you know, we had to do a lot of setup in this movie. Yeah. And if we get to do a sequel, we don't have to do all that setup, which will make it so much uh, easier, you know, for me. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. I was also wondering, I know we've got to wrap up soon, but I was asked by a friend who knows a lot about the Guardians of the Galaxy uh -huh. about whether the Star Prince jab was an in-joke. 
Is there something to do with royalty or lords or... No, it's really just, you know, him getting his name wrong. Nobody knows <laughs> his name. And, you know, uh, I had another time when I had, you know, uh, what did... What did I, had a, I had a moment I cut from the movie that, that I thought was very funny, but it didn't work where um, I think... Uh, what does he call him? Oh, yeah, uh, where, where Jaiman Hunsu calls him Space Lord. You know, <laughs> and he, he he's going to Ronan. He's like, who got this thing? And, and you know, who got the, the, the orb and the stone? And, and Jaiman Hunsu, a thief who calls himself Space Lord. And Ronan goes, Space Lord. <laughs> Ridiculous. Like, but it was kind of too light and too funny for, for the villain scene at the beginning. And we kind of kept a little. It's more Peter Serafinowicz. What a bunch of a holes, which yeah. I love. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's so sad that he goes. It's yeah. so sad that he goes. What a bunch of a holes is an interesting line because what a bunch of a holes was not in the script. What a bunch of a holes is. We shot those opening uh, mug shots um, for the trailer that we were going to show at Comic Con. I remember it. And the whole thing where John C. Riley is explaining some of that stuff was only shot for the Comic-Con trailer so we could set up some of the characters for Comic-Con. And at the end of it, I went in and I said to Peter, will you say, you know, what a bunch of a-holes. It was something I thought of there when I was sitting on the set. And Peter was like, I don't really think that works. He's like, what about what a bunch of idiots? And I'm like, no, trust me, trust me. What a bunch of a-holes will will work. And then he said it. And, of course, that's become this. And then we put it in the movie <laughs> because people liked it so much. So, you know. I, I, I mean, well, I should wrap up, but I love, I love your welcome as a tagline. But I would live in such happiness if the tagline was officially what a bunch of a-holes. <laughs> well, it's, it's close enough. It's close enough. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. James Gunn is a really, really pleasant, really engaging, genuinely funny. He could be a comedian, stand-up comedian type guy. Mm. Like, maybe it was a little bit fact-based with my interview. Obviously, what I needed was different, but I had the pleasure and privilege of interviewing him um, on different occasions. A number of times in that day, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. I hold a record. Three. Three with him on one day and three with uh, Chris Pratt. Mm. And he is just the funniest, sharpest guy, and you can so see how much of him is in the film. Yeah. It is easily, I would say, the James Gunniest film there's ever been made and it's interesting it's, that inside a big studio movie it's the it's the biggest budget trauma movie that's ever been made it's <laughs> the biggest budget James Gunn movie that's ever been made one of the things I loved about the movie was seeing all the little James Gunn uh, travelling repertory company popping mm. up in it so you get Nathan Villian uh, as the CG as the mocap uh, the blue monstrous alien I think he's That's literally right. credited as monstrous inmate yes uh, in the in the in the killing sequence um, I was watching the footage I introduced um, 17 minutes of this movie with Kevin Feige at Marvel uh, Leicester Square uh, Empire a, a couple of weeks ago and during that scene uh, Feige leaned over to me and went that's Nathan Fillion <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Because I think most people were expecting to play either play Jason Quill's dad or yeah. Yeah, show I, up yeah. as one of the Nova Corps or something. But the fact he shows up and he's completely unrecognizable. Also, there's Greg Henry, Michael Rooker. And in that same scene in the kiln, um, Lloyd Kaufman, mm. he is in that scene. You can see him very clearly. And he, of course, is the Lord of Troma. He is the Lord of Troma. That's, that's his actual title. He's the guy who gave James Gunn his start. Indeed, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm not surprised this film's very, very funny because, as you say, James Gunn is very, very funny. And uh, his track record as a writer, if you take aside the Scooby-Doo movies, <laughs> is is good. I mean, he's he knows his way around a, a one-liner and uh, quirky, acerbic characters, I think. I didn't like Super. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit Super. 
in the wake of this. Uh, I'll be honest now, you know, uh, about that. But and you really Slither, didn't like Super. I, really I mean, didn't you like you properly didn't like I it. I probably didn't like it. So was, I'm, I'm going to go back. I can't and see how you it. can come back from that. You never know. I can't see. You, you never really? know. Yeah, I might hate, I might still hate it and just mm. turn it off again. But yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, moving on to the film itself, Guardians of the Galaxy. What we're going to do is gonna, you know, now and again we mix it up. Now and again we get you to send us in questions if you've seen the movie. Uh, in question, which you have, because it's already opened in the UK by the time we're recording this. So we're going to go question by question. Uh, here's the first one. It's from Jimmy Beale via email. Uh, they're all via email. Uh, he says, Hi Empire, love the film, but do you guys feel Ronan the Accuser was a little vanilla as a villain? For me, there was nothing that menacing about him, and it seemed like anyone could have played that role. Uh, I think this is one of the flaws I was referring mm. to. He's, j- he's really intense. Really intense. He's really and intense and yeah. has a a sort of a Mjolnir with a long stick on it. Yeah. And that's pretty much it, isn't it? I kind of feel sorry for Lee Pace, to be honest, because, and I feel sorry for him in the Hobbit films as well, because um, he's clearly a very good actor. And here he is in both these movies, buried under layers of makeup, and you don't get any sense. He's, he's very foreboding in both movies, and he's going around making portentous speeches and a very deep voice. And you don't get any sense, I think, of his personality as an actor coming through or you don't get any sense of a personality in, in either character Thranduil or uh, or Ronan I, I disagree with you on Thranduil but we're, we're not here to talk about the we're Hobbit. not here we'll talk so, about that so you, I, know, you know what I mean I mean you know there's more of a personality in, in Thranduil he's absolutely. A, he's a bit of a bit of a git yeah. but I thought Ronan was a very bland bad guy and I think uh, Thanos in his very very brief appearance when they had that argument I did find myself soning out a little bit uh, it was, you know, they were talking about stuff. It's a, it's a bombardment of information, and strange mm. character names, and strange place names in the first thirty minutes of this movie, and discussing things that we don't really have a handle on as viewers quite yet. Second time around, it was a bit more enjoyable, but I do wonder that the Marvel universe is so far the Marvel Cinematic Universe has one truly outstanding bad guy, which is Tom Hiddleston's Loki who is depth and nuance and character and has you know different emotions and feels hurt and pain and makes you side with him and then side against him. And I wonder that since then, we've had Ronan the Accuser, who's just a bit bland and one-dimensional and just wants to destroy everything and sits in a big throne and you just wonder what he, how he feels his day. Same with Thanos, who just seems to be sitting on a throne all day long. Uh, and I don't really get any sense of the menace or the personality. I mean, this is a character of Thanos in particular who's going to be setting up He's clearly going to be in Avengers 3. You know, they haven't been circumspect about that at all. He's going to be the big bad in Avengers 3. I've got a feeling Ultron will be a great bad guy in Age of Ultron. And I, I'm not seeing anything in Thanos yet mm. to to show a personality that can follow in the footsteps of Loki or, or Ultron. I would say, even if you compare it to Malekith, which got painted with a similar brush, mm. with Malekith, I at least felt like there was... This seems unfair that we're digging straight into this, but maybe it's justified... Malekith at least had this idea of a nation or a a race mm. that, from their point of view, was wronged. There was a kind of a genocide. There was a mm. Superman, Zod-type situation where they were kind Absolutely, of just, like, yeah. sent off into the, the black morass. And you go, well, I feel for you. I feel for you. There is a certain amount of good or bad, whatever you've done, There is, there is that is maybe the most extreme punishment you can be given. Whereas this guy is essentially a zealot. Like, he's just a fundamentalist whack job Mm. who for some reason, I couldn't work this out, has in his service the two daughters of his boss. 
He's that not right? even his boss, really. So is that just a coincidence? What's going on there? Well, my feeling is that Thanos has basically lent him Gamora and Nebula as muscle. Uh, not that he really ever seems to need it. Uh, there's another question later on from someone whose name I won't reveal quite yet, which I think asks a very, very pertinent question about that and about the relationships and about what everyone in this movie wants and how they really want to get it, which I guess could be a slight flaw. But yeah, I just, I don't know, it's just something about... You're right, Ronan doesn't really seem to have a great motivation. The, the Kree are set up very, very quickly in a voiceover on a radio, the, the, the Kree-Sandar conflict, the Sandarian conflict, I guess, you know, that they're, you know, they've, they've mm-hmm. been at war for a while and Ronan's on the edges of this conflict. Uh, but I, I just, I just feel he needed more shade, to be honest. He needed something, he needed more levity. Loki, for example, is a, is a villain who can make you laugh. The only sense I got of that, the only sense I really got of a personality in this guy was when he confronts Thanos, funnily enough, which is interesting because he's clearly there in front of someone who's meant to be much more powerful than he is and he just doesn't give a shit yes. he kills uh, the other uh, played by Alexis Denisov again and then uh, at the very very end when Peter Quill and by the way just to, just to let you know we will be discussing the end of the film if you haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy seriously stop listening because uh, we're about to do it at the end of the film when Peter starts doing the dance in front of him which I loved yeah which I loved again and, and you can, you know Ronan's kind of going what what's happening it's uh, unusual of course it, it, you know we, we associate people called Ronan they might not pe- know what music is <laughs> uh, but uh, it just that, that was a sense of quirk a sense of personality in this character and I thought it was otherwise sorely lacking I wonder whether maybe they decided to have this reasonably black brick bad guy because they have five albeit not Gamora very wacky I don't like that word, but wacky characters as their leads. So if you had someone who was too interesting, <laughs> I feel like I'm grasping here, uh, hmm. is that wouldn't work. And I think you needed just somebody who was out and out, let's not mess around, utterly awful. But at the same time, her, you know, his assistants, Nebula, for example, I was much more curious about. Hmm. The idea of being the adopted daughter with another adoptive daughter that you're, they have this competition with each other. Then she is, like Rocket Raccoon, cybernetically twisted. You know, her arm can be broken off to put another one on, and she's got all these implants and whatever, and that's what gives her strength. And you must mm. be really complicated. And, and what's what's it like to be you? Are you good? Are you bad? Interestingly, James Gunn said, "I don't think she's pure bad," uh, and I think that's part of the reason why she's been kept around. But I wanted to know more about her than I did about the actual big bad. Anyway, I think I think Ronan did the job at least, and it did allow for that wonderful moment where you do get them singing and dancing and, and absorbing the power together and overcoming him which i was so surprised at how much i cared about yeah i found myself at that moment as we're jumping as we're humbling as we're jumping straight to the end i really cared and it is a testament to my albeit limited desire to rewatch it very soon is to see how james gunn managed to make me genuinely care not just about them but about their relationship as a Mm. whole group Mm. a very difficult task we've said this so many times before other movies like Avengers have had other films to build up to this point. He has two hours and a bit to do all of that and introduce Xandar and the Kree mm. and dot and dot and dot and dot and dot. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. Having seen it twice now as well, I feel that it got me the same place as got me the second time around. The the bit near the end when Groot makes that sacrifice and basically decides to kill himself in order to save the others. And uh, there's a scene when Rocket is basically going, "Why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, you'll, you'll die." And then Groot has the big line, "We are Groot," and I just found myself, honestly, I know you may laugh, I felt myself tearing up. 
And then there was a little bit where I was just, I, I removed myself from that and go, hang on, that's a CG raccoon talking to a CG tree. And he's managed to make me care about these characters. And I have no investment in the comic books. This is unlike, you know, Avengers or... I didn't grow up reading these characters. I didn't grow up... I, I credit some Guardians of the Galaxy comics. But not this iteration. Not this group. This is a fairly recent uh, Marvel comic that with this team. Uh, I didn't read it. I've, ne- I've, never, I've never read it, in fact. And uh, it just surprised me that... Oh, my God, I actually care. I care about Peter Quill. I care about him not opening the, the tape and at the end when he opens the awesome mixtape and he has a moment and there's a moment of humanity and there's a moment of, of uh, moving on past the loss of his mum and I, I cared about Drax uh, and his you know his quest for revenge I cared about all that stuff and I, there, were, there were a couple of moments actually that kind of got me uh, in the back of the throat as well yeah I think that's fair Dan's laughing because of the entendre. Yeah, but yeah, I think you know. Dan, no, no, you're no. a soulless husk. That's all you're laughing. I'm not a soulless husk at all. It was a, it was it was a fun film, but there was no deep emotional resonance for me whatsoever. Um, and if I'm going to be very harsh, I sort of thought we all grew, and the holding hands at the end was a, was a bit cheesy. Ah, well, there you go. Could you tell us, Chris, a little bit about the sting? Because we, Dan and I, didn't see it with <laughs> the sting right. That's right. because yes. they made a decision this time around to make sure that the sting wasn't shown to press. Apparently, we have a reputation for talking about it. It's it's other it is others. Nimrods who uh, who uh, take to Twitter and go, "Hey, you never guess what?" And if you haven't seen the sting again, what the hell are you doing here? The sting at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy has. Howard the Duck in it and uh, so the, the, the sting uh, <laughs> for the benefit of my two co-hosts here is um, at the very very end at the very end of the movie which tells you that it's a, a funny sting and B doesn't advance the Marvel Cinematic Universe in any way whatsoever in the way that the know, dancing tree did in the way the dancing tree did we, 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 that's, that's not even a post-credit sting that's a pre-credit sting mm-hmm. uh, so therefore it's, they're, they're delving into new territory here so the rule the Marvel rule is if the post-credit sting comes after the main credit roll it advances the either the next film or advances the story of the MCU in some way. If it comes right at the very, very end, it's just a joke. So, the end of the, the film has the collector played by Benicio Del Toro. You may remember him from his brief appearance earlier in the film. Sitting in the ruins of his uh, lair, uh, his face is being licked by Cosmo the Space Dog, at which point we hear a voice off screen saying something like, how can you let that thing lick your face? It's disgusting. And we cut to Howard the Duck sitting in his shattered cage and then he eats something which is really really disgusting I didn't quite see what it was but uh, and then at the very very end it comes up it cuts to black and it comes up with Howard the Duck created by whoever created it uh, so Howard the Duck is now part of the of the MCU we see him briefly uh, when we first go into the collector's lair pretty sure you see something that's meant to be obviously they don't have the rights to an alien but you see something that is I'm positive is 95% a xenomorph uh, and you see Howard the Duck in one of the cages right at the very back and he kind of turns a little bit and you see Cosmo the Space Talk as well who is, who is another character from do, do you know my abiding memory of Howard the Duck yeah no you don't, don't you, you know it no because I haven't accepted you so okay good excellent well you might have accepted this there's there's the scene in the original Howard the Duck where um, uh, he gets sucked to earth by the by the machine and he crashes he crashes through a bathroom where a she-duck <laughs> is bathing and she's topless and she's she squeals and she has breasts duck breasts with nipples they're ducks it just doesn't make any sense they lay eggs she doesn't need to suckle her young and it just bothers me it haunts me on a daily basis and i'm glad i didn't see this post credit sting because otherwise 
that image would have come back into my head sooner than it did. Uh, we've had several questions from people going, does this now mean that Howard the Duck is part of the MCU? Will he get his own film? Uh, I would imagine not. <laughs> Although you never know. You never know. This film is just about quirky enough that it could handle Howard the Duck. I mean, he's so far effectively set up a talking raccoon and a talking tree as uh, as fulcrums of this universe. So who knows? Uh, right, I'm taking, picking a question at random here. Uh, this is from Lee Ashworth, who says, Having watched Brilliant Guardians of the Galaxy last night, one thing only left me disappointed. I'm waiting for a major disaster in a Marvel movie. You heartless bastard. Do you think the future of the films would be more appealing... If Sandar had been destroyed, or another planet which didn't house the Nova Corps, the comics ground themselves well with major plot disasters, with characters dying, or the hero not always saving the day. Discuss. Yes, I think they are in dire need of this, frankly. I think they need to kill someone and let them die. We talked about this in the last spoiler podcast about mm-hmm. Freya, uh, who's mm-hmm. the only person. and she's Frigga. Frigga, sorry. Frigga, how could I forget? She dies, obviously, in Thor The Dark World, and she's very minor. Coulson's come back in a different, albeit the same form, but also different and also the same. Can we have a death? I I am heartened by Captain America's shield being broken, though of course we know he's not going to die. Hmm. So come yeah, on, Marvel. Nick, Nick Fury obviously was the big, same old you know, thing, you know. So uh, so yeah, it's 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 yeah, and I actually yeah, I would have liked to have seen a, you know whatever a planet blowing up or something like that. Um, and if anyone's read my review, they already know I have a beef with this. So I'm just repeating myself. That's fine. But um, I kind of feel I'm seeing the same ending, or at least in terms of broad set piece, over and over again now with Marvel films, starting with the Avengers onwards. In the way that it ends up with a climactic battle which takes place mostly in the sky, which primarily involves lots of flying objects whipping around really fast. And then there will be a very large flying object which will come crashing down to the Earth and destroy it in some way. And then you can also add on, this also sort of does the same thing as Thor. Thor had all all swirly red stuff, Infinity Stone, Battle for Supremacy of the Infinity Stone. And this has swirly purple stuff, Infinity Stone, Battle for Supremacy of the Infinity Stone. Different gags within... But overall, and so anyway, so coming to Guardians, specifically to Guardians, I thought, well, okay, they're they're, they're not on Earth, they're out in space, so we're going to see something different at least, right? Oh no, come the end, the big baddie spaceship goes down into the atmosphere of a planet, therefore gravity can be exerted upon it so that it can come crashing down and we can have another battle with lots of little flying things against the sky within an atmosphere. Well, what would you have them do? I don't know, I like that guy's idea about destroying an entire planet. That's good. Work for Star Wars. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, but is that any good? Mm. But, I uh, know. Okay, here's a crazy idea. A space battle. I actually really enjoyed, on this topic, one of my favourite things about this film is seeing, what's the word, the chain fence? I don't know, the kind of barrier of mm. Peter Serafinowicz. Oh, you mean like the one in Thor The Dark World? The big golden shield? <laughs> is there one in Thor The Dark Oh, <laughs> no, no, but that's not made up of spaceships. We're talking about space battle. Okay. So you do actually have space battles, and I love the design of the um, Nova Corps craft, but I was thinking yeah. more of the Ravagers. Like, I really like how they look. Like, they, yeah, I like all the spaceships. I, I think the more they did it, I was like, oh, give me more of that. I want to see them ducking and diving and bobbing and weaving and kind of, like, negotiating each other's mm. fire. And when they united and to push back the bigger ship, I, I was actually a bit like, are you actually going to pe- kill? You're killing Peter Serafinowicz. They killed Mr. Brian Butterfield. Have ter- you been killed by the Nova Corps? <laughs> <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> anyway, before it descends into bad Butterfield impressions. We do amuse um, ourselves. No, I, I was actually like, you bunch of a-holes. Just after his best line as well. I know. 
can't believe I'm taking orders from a hamster. We've got another question for someone. Uh, oh, I'll try and find it. Who says, how does uh, how does Peter Servinowicz's character know what a hamster is? Well, <laughs> they have made the joke, obviously, that raccoons don't exist in space. So how do they know what a raccoon is? So that's a fair comment. I reckon that was a Peter Serafinowitz ad-lib or James Gunn on-the-spot job. But, hey, how about the idea of a space hamster? If you've ever played Baldur's Gate, mm-hmm. you'll know that space hamsters do exist. Mm. Uh, normally, and in the only instance of one existing, they're called Boo, and they go for the eyes. I think it's uh, obviously just a joke, which is uh, a fair comment and yeah. uh, does not make sense. I, yeah, I, I, fair point. I, you know, how does anyone know what anything is? In in Star Wars, they make references to stuff that's, that's earthbound. So, you yeah, know, it's like, just you have like to tax. assume there's, it's, a, there's it's, a galactic it's, it's, universal language. It's like a Babel fish, basically. Yes. The audience is wearing a Babel fish, has a Babel fish in its ear. Every audience member has one. And so it's just it's just being translated for us. Okay. He probably said something like a goggle snoggle flux. <laughs> <laughs> and if he'd said, you know, I can't believe I'm taking orders from a goggle snoggle flux, then uh, no one would have laughed except maybe, I would have laughed well Chris, Chris I would have laughed yeah just a funny idea but, but gargle snorkel flux yeah, is exactly. very funny but, to me. but it translates as hamster if you have a babel fish Horrible in juice. your ear canal it sounds like the cross between slutty butt fast and the cocktail from Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy <laughs> the well we've all got a bit of Douglas Adams in us I think should we move on to another question yeah I like this question from this uh, is it Joe Kaz Joe Kaz that's exactly the one I've won yeah, great that's exactly the one I'm on go for it well here's the question a point to the pod did anybody else think that Gamora wasn't fully established in the film to be the complete and utter badass slash assassin nutjob that all the hype set her up to be that first scene with her and Quill and the rest of them had her bumbling around to and fro chasing the orb likewise Drax despite being built like a brick shithouse got his arse handed to him on numerous occasions we seem to have been sold the characters via marketing instead of establishing their badassery uh, on screen I know what he's saying uh, by the way, this is from Leonard Sultana at Lenny UK. No, that's DJ. It? No, no, it's a way. It's a formatting of the. Uh, oh, okay. It's a formatting. This is definitely a Leonard Sultana email. Yeah, I, I get the point. I get the point less about Drax, who I seem to recall only having his ass handed to him on one occasion, and that was by Ronan, uh, and that was, I think, meant to. Well, well, wasn't even meant to. That was to set up the idea that Ronan is so strong, so fast, so powerful that to him Drax is just a minor inconvenience. And you do see him re- uh, one of my favorite bits is when they're actually on his ship working their way through and they just have co you know cohorts of these goons and you get to really see them do their thing and him lifting people up into the air Drax and then just slamming them back down on the floor. Mm. That's great. And then you get to see Groot do the huge root thing he does and massive massive laugh by the way. Uh, there's one of the reasons I want to go back and see this film again. Uh, for a third time, I want to see it with the pain audience. I want to see it with the full pain audience to see if the payoff lines and the comedy moments really, really play, uh, really play big. Because when Groot grows his tree limb, smashes through all those those necromongers or whatever they were, <laughs> all those necro troops, kills them all, and then turns around to the camera to look at his other guy, uh, look at his teammates, and you expect him to have this massive stoic Lee Marvin face on. He just grins goof- goofily. Mm. Biggest laugh of the film. Even bigger than the uh, Jackson Pollock Blacklight joke. And, uh, you know, it's just those moments like that, those little charming moments really, really won me over. But anyway, you know, Drax, he kicks gas throughout yeah. constantly. Yeah, humongously. I, I didn't feel like humongously. A lot. Uh, Gamora, though, I think that's a fair comment. You see that yeah. brief battle with Nebula, but it's one of those traditional blade meets blade meets blade, swish, swish, swish yes. type fights. I wanted more of her being... She's, she's billed as an assassin, Mm. I'd like to see her assassinate. Ooh. Ooh. Interesting. 
Yeah, I kind of get, but I, I get the sense as well as she's an assassin. She's built. She started. She's uh, depicted from the office an assassin whose heart is not in it and who doesn't want to do this anymore. And I, I, I kind of get that. The opening battle, the opening fight scene between all four of them, where they're all tripping over each other, each other, <laughs> each other's legs, and whatnot. I, I quite like that as well. It sets up the, the idea fun. that they're, like they're not as proficient as any of them might claim to hmm. be. Um, and I like that. Uh, but she does, in the prison, get overpowered very easily and taken off to her imminent demise by... Well, yeah, because she's overpowered. There's, she's jumped by a lot of guys. I mean, an assassin isn't necessarily the kind of person that can get themselves out of a situation where... And I'm speaking, obviously, from experience. Um, <laughs> isn't the kind of person that gets themselves out of a situation where they're jumped by, like, eight people at once without any of their weapons or equipment. An assassin yeah. is just someone who is trained to kill people who aren't expected... Sorry, who aren't expecting to be killed. And she's loathed, um, universally loathed by exactly. everyone in there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's an important point about that actually they're not individually all that great the whole idea of the film is that they come together as a family as a team and and uh, you know achieve greatness as a unit they're not like yes. the avengers who individually are brilliant and then come together for super brilliance they're kind of individually <laughs> you know a bit rubbish really and then they come together oh yeah this works although I, i'm still not quite sure what what different job rocket and and, and peter do kind of for the personality of the film well, Rocket's the uh, Rocket's essentially the, the uh, he's the weapons guy. He's mm. the ideas man. He's the guy who can build you a gadget. Yeah. And MacGyver but, is but way Peter's out of the got gadgets and he has ideas. Yeah, but he doesn't and... build stuff. Well, where did he I get that? I heard someone else funky mask from. I heard well, presumably it was given to him by uh, by Yondu. But okay. I, I, I I've heard this criticism before that uh, Peter and Rocket are the same character. Mm. Really? They feel very similar. Really? Mm. Rocket's much angrier, much more acerbic. Yeah, he feels like he's got a massive chip on his shoulder and he's yeah. also cybernetically enhanced and a bloody raccoon. Uh, where Or not. It, a, what? A raccoon-like being. Yeah, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, he's Joe he's okay. Pesci, essentially. He's a, he's a little guy with a chip on his shoulder who wants to take on the world and Peter Quill is absolutely not that. He's he's a charming rogue. Yeah, he's a guy um, who sleeps with everyone. Uh, he's a pelvic sorcerer. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very good point. Uh, it's one of the things I've, I've written down, actually. They're not superheroes. This is not a superhero film. And Feige has always said that, you know, he wants ultimately as many of the movies not to feel like a superhero film as you can as you could as you can as otherwise people will get bored very very quickly and i think you could take someone who's never read a marvel comic or hasn't seen the avengers or doesn't like superheroes you could take them to see this movie and they would get on with it absolutely just fine especially um, if they grew up in the 80s watching star wars ripoffs especially if they did yeah you know, so you 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 uh, referenced battle beyond the stars oh, yeah. great battle beyond the stars in your review and yeah there's there's definitely dna of that movie yeah, in this absolutely. you know the spaceships the characters everything it's, yeah. it's it's so good um but it it does really raise an interesting point as well um, if Avengers 3 has Thanos taken on the Avengers and the likelihood given that Guardians of the Galaxy 2 will come first the likelihood will be that the Guardians of the Galaxy will also show up uh, on Earth I presume it's on Earth to uh, to face off against Thanos and link up with the Avengers and good luck writing that script Joss Whedon um, is, uh, is how's it going to work because Drax is super strong to an extent but not Hulk strong Gamora you know she's durable, but Peter Quill's just a guy oh, with some gadgets, and there's a, a tree and a, and a raccoon, and whoever else they add in the next one. You got Hawkeye, and you got Black Widow in the Avengers. They don't yeah. have superpowers. Ah, true. no, you are incorrect, sir. He's not just a human. He is half uh, a very ancient being. I'm very curious about that. Is this another Titan? Like who who could be this older than the universe being that is his father? That Yoda. No. Way. You just blew my mind. 
you just blew my mind. Uh, it's a Disney movie now, so it could mm. be it could be Yoda, mm. it could be John Lasseter. <laughs> you never know. You never know. In the comics, it's uh, you know. And That's again, right, yeah. I'm being completely honest here. Uh, I'm reading this. <laughs> I'm being completely honest here. I'm not okay with the Guardians of the Galaxy this iteration, as I said. Uh, it is a character called Jason of Sparta, who is the emperor of the Spartoi Empire, uh, a sister race of the Shi'ar, who are most usually crop up in X Men comics and part of the Kree Shi'ar. Uh, war or Shire probably uh, Shire war uh, and um, yeah I don't think he's I honestly don't think it's going to be that character I think they'll they'll change it they'll they'll change it to someone a couple of people have suggested via email it could be uh, Adam Warlock or Nova or maybe even Thanos could it be an Asgardian Silver uh, Surfer Silver Surfer Noran Rad himself yeah. owned by Fox <sighs> could it be could it be Adam West Yes. Good. Let's go for that. Let's go for that. Uh, we'll find out. We'll find out in the next one. Superman. Superman. We've got a question from our good friend Dallas King, uh, who has asked a question, the kind of comment that I would make on these podcasts. I hope people enjoy them when I go on my little persnickety rants. This, I'm not going on one, Dan. All right. And also you can talk. <laughs> this is from Dallas, Dallas King. I love Guardians of the Galaxy, but I was wondering about the fact that even though it is set in a galaxy far, far away, how do we have a world here where there are a plentiful supply of double-A batteries so Star-Lord can play as Sony Walkman. He's a, he's a ravager. He's a scavenger. He's, he's scavenged it. He scavenged. He ravaged yeah. it. He had a scavenged. Well, he clearly didn't make it because obviously that's what Rocket does. Yes. Well, Rocket is the guy. In the prison, he's the guy who comes no, together. I know, I know, but he's, he's you know, he's I would, uh, Rocket could have made it, but he already owns it before he meets Rocket. Yeah, he's a scavenger, and uh, I think that, he I must think have that, found one on, um, you know, Beetlejuice. Well, where did he get the Milano from? It was clearly given to him by Yondu. And clearly, at some point, he won Yondu's trust. Ah, oh, so Yondu must have nabbed it. Okay, that's conceivable. Yeah, that is conceivable. Uh, just, I, I, mean, I was thinking, yeah, that that tape has endured. I mean, I've got tapes, mixed tapes I made years ago. You find them now; the sound quality's dreadful. If the tape hasn't already spooled out, or if it hasn't been wiped clean over the years, this is Dolby surround sound. Good. I mean. Yeah. Really, if it were a mini disc, I'd have believed it. But can I just say, in amongst the pedantry, what a soundtrack! Ah, uh, <laughs> hooked on a soundtrack. I love it. I absolutely love the soundtrack. I downloaded it, and I, it's been on my iPod ever since. Uh, I like to go scavenging, listening to some of the songs from it. And there's some some great tracks. I mean, I love the credits. There's a, you know, there's a boldness. We we talked about this movie being a risk and a gamble, and yet there's nothing in this movie that's tentative for me. There's nothing where they're kind of going, oh, let's try this and see if it works. So, uh, right from the off, it's got a boldness. It has a, a, a scene that takes place, the death of a fairly major character, you know, a mother, which is always traumatic for people on screen, before the Marvel ident. That's a new thing. That's, a, that's, that's weird. They have a credit sequence, which is, which is also new as well, you know, with the you know, Peter Lord. Uh, Peter Lord, Peter Lord, the director of Pirates uh, <laughs> in an adventure scientist. He pops in, does a bit of stop motion. Aliens and adventures <laughs> with would-beat creatures. Starquill. Starquill. I absolutely Quill. loved that credit sequence. Credit Honestly, sequence my yeah. favourite bit of the film was him picking up one of those little, and James Gunn tells us what, what those creatures are in the interview, those little weaselly dinosaur jobbies and start singing into <laughs> one. I'm just like, this is the best. He picks up dinosaur jobbies. Dinosaur weasel jobbies. And it really it really also drives home as well Chris Pratt's charisma. That he can get away with doing that. And he can hold your attention while doing that stuff. Mm. That song, by the way, is uh, Come and Get Your Love. Whoops, and I've just played it, which we don't have the rights to. Uh, it's by uh, Redbone. Mm. And I googled it this morning. He, he doesn't dance in time to it, though. He's, 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 his rhythm's well off. 
it's it's white guy dancing. Mm, what, do you, what do you want? Yeah, you know, I, I expect a wedding to well, break not, out around not, him. Not every white guy. What about blue guy dancing? I want to see that later. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, that'd awesome. be cool. I imagine Yondo has uh, mm. Yondo has some serious moves. Yondo can get on the credit sequence. But it was nice to have a credit sequence. Yeah. I kind of, you know, maybe I'm just old and boring now, but I kind of miss miss credit sequences. You know, you just just kind of, you know, I, I like that thing where you just get eased into a film and. You just slowly lower it in, and yeah. here we are. And you know, rather than now, nearly every summer blockbuster doesn't even. Maybe you'll get the title quickly. Mm. But I just like that. I like yeah. a good credit scene. Old school. Also, this is a movie that you know you say it doesn't really tentatively do anything. This is a movie that has a uh, essentially a massive semen joke, Jackson Pollock and the Blacklight. Yeah, but obscure and you know obfuscated enough that you can completely get away with it. That was, that was you know it's, it's not it's not a mewling quim moment, is it? That was pretty um, obfuscated. But, uh... <laughs> and not many people, you know, I think the most 14-year-old boys who were seeing Guardians didn't go, Quim, naughty! They just went, huh. Mm. But I think we live in a CSI world, don't we? Everyone knows what a blacklight is, and everyone knows where they show up. Do you love a good semen joke? Really is good. Um, another question from Robbie Wilkinson, who says, Guardians of the Galaxy clearly had more swears in it and probably more aggressive action moments, Nebula's reconfiguration scene, for example. With this, do you see Marvel edging into a more adult-minded territory, potentially? Then he asks a question about who played the Punisher, but we'll ignore that. Address it another time. I did, it didn't feel massively more adult to me. I mean... If anything, uh, the opposite. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, as as a father of... of you know, as a father... As a father, I... Um, <laughs> sorry, what a terrible line. But I got kids, so I kind of... I'm quite attuned to this could i take my boys to go and see this um and i think there was uh yeah there was some brutality sort of knife moments for example mm-hmm. you know there's, there's there's some pretty full-on stuff in avengers there's some pretty full-on stuff in the iron man films well, in captain america um, the winter soldier henchmen are being mown down by machine gun fire left yeah. right and center and you know there's no blood uh that's more brutal than anything that happens in this i would, mm. I would say mm. so so yeah i think my quick answer to that question would be nah nah but, nah. uh, but there you go. I just don't think Marvel could ever. He, uh, Robbie Wilkinson also asks essentially if the Marvel Universe moves in a certain direction, would we see Punisher? Would we see an R rated Punisher uh, movie on, on the big screen? Notwithstanding the fact that the, all three have been R rated. Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't see within that universe. I think if something like The Punisher turns up, I think the Netflix series may be more hard edged. Mm more adult in tone, mm. 15 rated, certainly. I wouldn't um, be surprised to see the Punisher cropping up I wouldn't be surprised to see that. that. Absolutely. He, he's um, definitely in Daredevil. As, as a else. villain in inverted commas. Absolutely. Um, okay, this is an interesting question uh, from Jazeel. Um, uh, sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, hello, everyone at Empire. Hello, readers. Lots of love in your direction, as always. Uh, oh. I am Groot. Question. I am Groot. Yes, you are. We are all Groot. We are Groot. Uh, why do you think they changed the circumstances in which Peter's mother dies? Uh, there's also the fact he wasn't taken as a kid, went to space on his own instead. Uh, do you think it was just because they can't, for some reason, feature the Badoon in the movies? Couldn't she have been killed by some other aliens who had issues with Quill's father? I had no problem where they chose to go with. Uh, I cried in the first five minutes. Uh, just curiosity. I think this is the same reason why they, you know, they, they're not beholden to the comic books. Yeah. Uh, Feige has said this constantly this is why in Age of Ultron Ultron will be created by Tony Stark and not Hank Pym they just change things they mix to it suit, up to suit their universe hmm. uh, and you never know we might get more information on Peter's mother and Peter's father uh, in the sequel Peter's mother played by the way by Laura Haddock I think it's a good device to have him taken as a, as a kid because it kind of feeds into this idea of arrested development with 
Peter. You know, he he's he's was taken from his home environment very young at a traumatic time. So it kind of his childishness can come from that and also uh, it gives you that soundtrack as well the idea that he's he's you know he's frozen in 1988 in terms of what he thinks is cool and great and you know uh, what his cultural reference points are yeah. and that feeds into the whole cool you know fun 80s vibe of the film which obviously you know James Gunn loves just as much as I do absolutely if not also, more. also I'm quite glad uh, ultimately that uh, it was revealed that uh, it was no coincidence that mm. a spaceship just turned up and abducted Peter at that very moment that uh, that Yondu had been paid by Peter's dad to come and get him, which also raises a question about Peter's dad. Um, is he a bit of a scumbag who can't be arsed to go see his boy or indeed see the woman who bore his child just as she passes away? Men are uh, bastards. Absolutely. Ultra bastards. And who is he and how it all ties in? I was a little annoyed, actually, that having already got that line as Yondu is going away about, you know, good thing we didn't bring him to his dad as we were paid to do. That then, seconds later in the movie, we have the Nova Course, you know, saying to Peter, oh, well, you're not actually human, you're half human, you're half Terran, you're half... I wonder if, you know, just one hint would have been enough. Yeah, I agree. One I think they should have left it at that and not yeah. had that Glenn Close but saying that line to him. Having said that, though, uh, Peter doesn't hear Yondu's line. So what that does is give Peter something to drive him forward in the second movie, a quest for his dad. If Helen were here, she'd be loveless because his, his father issues, yay. Um, but um, you know, maybe that will be something that he goes on the, the, in, the, in the second movie, looking to see who his dad is. And I see what he think is. you're probably right. Probably right. Uh, also, we should probably mention uh, the other big names in this movie. Glenn Close is in Gl- this film. Glenn Close is in this film. John C. Riley's in this film. John C. Riley. Benicio del Toro's in this film. Mm. Just mentioning him uh, there means he probably got more time in this podcast than they did in the actual film. You talked to James Gunn about there's there's a much bigger, longer version of this movie. Yeah, you'll have heard it already, but basically there was a lot. Not even characters like that. There were two characters that you mentioned that are in the boot. You know that big bar that they go to, and they got cut out. There must have been a really tough editing thing because these movies are so hard to pull off when you've got to establish all of these different characters, these different worlds. And I think that's why in the beginning there's such a choppy, 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 lots of different information. They just kind of throw it at you and go, look, you'll get over it. Don't get too bogged down. Just Let's just get into this. You know how this works. You can tell that Glenn Close did not sign on the dotted line for that role. She didn't. There's no way. You would have gone, oh, what, three, four lines? I have to stand around a table whilst... TGI will be filled in later. I described her afterwards that she was essentially she was a walking wig. I mean, for <laughs> most of the film, it was a Chancellor Valorum kind of role, wasn't it? Really, Nova Prime. She got Valorumed. <laughs> she got Valorumed. She, yes, and uh, John C. Riley uh, as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. they did something which I thought was quite interesting. I think there must have been a bit in the original. You see on a couple of occasions on Xandar, which reminded me of a level of Halo, um, that whole area, or possibly uh, our Mass Effect. It was that kind of world, uh, to use game references there. A, a mother with red skin and a mm. daughter with red skin. And mm. you see female red-skinned aliens in the collector's... Magenta. Magenta, OK. Yeah. In the collector's office. Um, <laughs> branch, I call it, with James Gunn, because he says, oh, there's plenty of other places where he keeps all his stuff. Anyway, so they obviously, you realise at the very end, were the surprise wife and daughter of John C. Riley's character. But I didn't pick it up well enough. I didn't, I didn't get, pick it up at all. I didn't get the clues. Uh, did you get it the second time around, what they were no. trying to do? 
No. Because at the end, you have this strange thing where he, John C. Riley walks into his house and you get this swooping Michael Bay circular shot of them hugging. Well, what I think, what I think that was meant to do was just he, he says he, he says to Peter, thank you, there are people with families uh, and I'm one of them. Yeah. And I think the idea was just to show one of those families reuniting. And it's, it's a nice little thing that, hey, it's, it's interracial, it's cool, yeah, you know, everyone's cool in this world. Uh, I didn't mind that. Speaking of races and what have you, can I ask a question? Sorry, I know there's loads of questions, but I actually I have a question. One more one which is Which is kind of rhetorical for myself, obviously, but Chris, you might be able to help out. Where are the scrolls? My feeling... Have we already seen them? My feeling is that the scrolls are a Fox property. No, what? My, my Why? Feeling, How? Yeah, what? I think the scrolls are largely seen as a Fantastic Four enemy. <sighs> But there is, so they're, 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 you know, the Cree, the Shia or Shire, however you pronounce them, yeah. and the Scrolls are the three big yep. alien races yep. no, of, I'm, I'm, of, of the Marvel Universe, right? I'm fully with you in this one. And I don't know. And this is just complete supposition. But my feeling is Scrolls, uh, which, if you don't know, are uh, a warlike race who can yes. change their shape and, in certain cases, of Super Scroll, actually mm. uh, assume the powers of of other Marvel heroes uh, or other Marvel characters. I've got a feeling even though most recently they were famous obviously for Secret Invasion uh, which involved the entire Marvel Universe I've just got a feeling they're seen as a Fantastic Four and they might be part of the uh, that property. Fair never enough. know. Never know. Next time we, uh, next time I talk to Kevin Feige I'll ask. Mm, mm. I will ask him. Because I keep expecting to see them. I thought Avengers they would be the uh, uh, invading alien force. There was like, there was speculation about that wasn't yeah. there? Yeah. yeah. I think with Skrulls I don't know it's it's a it's not necessarily it's a big ask, but you have to do an awful lot of setting up, hmm. don't you? Because they're shapeshifters, though. I'm kind of I keep I'm looking out. I'm in all these Marvel films. Uh, you know, I'm looking out. Are we are we seeing them? We just don't know we're seeing them. Are they infiltrating already? I, I think they were Hydra. Maybe they were the naissance of Hydra. Yeah, Skrulls and Hydra together. Oh, you heard it here first. Hmm. Uh, here's a question from Daniel Cooper, who asks: uh, In the world of superpowers, flashing lights, and talking trees, I'm having a hard time remembering how many of the Infinity Stones we've seen, and who now has control of them. Three, three, three Infinity Stones. Yes. Blue is the Tesseract, which we saw in Captain America: The First Avenger, and uh, and then again, obviously in the Avengers. Sorry, Avengers Assemble. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, the 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 red is the ether, mm-hmm. which we saw in Thor: The Dark World, and now we've seen the purple, which isn't given a name. The orb. The let's orb. Just call it the just orb. Call, let's just, let's just call it the orb, uh, even though that's not the name. That's the name of the thing that it's contained yes. in. Okay, so this is where it gets more complicated, I guess. The Tesseract is on Asgard. Yes, we know that. That's where they take it at the end of Avengers Assemble. The red is the ether, which is in the collector's collection. We see it; uh, it's taken to him by uh, Sif and Falstag at the end of Thor: The Dark World. And now, of course, we have the purple, which leaves three, which leaves the uh, the green gem, the orange gem, and the yellow gem. Now, in the co- in the comics, the green uh, equates to soul, orange equates to time. This is manipulation and control of the relevant uh, entity. Uh, purple. Creates, uh, controls space, blue controls mind, yellow controls reality. Ooh, very powerful. And red is power, which accesses all power and energy that ever has or will exist and can boost the other gems' effects. Now, the Infinity Gauntlet, the Infinity Gauntlet is uh, the idea that Thanos wants to get all six of these gems together and wear them on his gauntlet, as displayed by Josh Brolin at the uh, Avengers Age, Age of Ultron panel at Comic Con. Uh, once he does that, he will be omnipotent. He will have the power to do go do anything go anywhere control everyone and annihilate everything 
that's a bad thing. Nobody wants that to happen. Now, in the movies so far, Blue, Tesseract, they seem to be changing what the what the gems are capable of doing so far. In the, in the comics, for the, the Blue controls is, it affects well, that does have the mental mind thing, mind though, doesn't it? Because, stuff. you know, that's what Loki uses to control people's minds. Yeah, but it also allows him to power other things and to mm. yeah, use it as a weapon and to fire yeah. energy beams to people and open mm. wormholes in space. And the same thing with the uh, with the uh, the the ether as well. It's not just augmenting mm. power. It seems to be I don't know. It's, yeah. it's not it's not even a stone. Yeah. Well, it it condenses into a stone. Oh. It condenses into a stone as does the tesseract. They haven't quite established yet. This is the first time in the this is the first time in any of the movies where they've they've where someone has gone uh, Benicio del Toro as collector exposition goes. This is, this is what it is. There are five more just like it. Get them all together would be a bad idea because you need to be very very powerful to handle it. Uh, and you know only Thanos or maybe some other characters were going to be introduced. The Beyonder could be able to do it. The Beyonder that would be interesting, wouldn't it? They're setting up the idea of the, of the Infinity Stones. They're setting up the idea of the Infinity Gauntlet. And clearly, I think most of the Phase Three movies will will be. Uh, in part dedicated to Thanos trying to get because they'll need to build Thanos up before Avengers 3 so he's not just a purple dude sitting on a throne in space so he actually has a threat and power and he he will probably I would imagine by Avengers 3 he'll have had he'll have four of the stones and Avengers 3 will be involving him coming to Earth to get the other two that's my guess that's just that's just me speculating thoughts? Uh, yeah, that seems to make sense. I wonder whether there'll be a stone in Ant-Man that will be very, very, very tiny. <laughs> they have to hunt. The kidney stone. The kidney stone. <laughs> he has stone. to go for the kidney stone. God, that would be a really painful power to inflict on anyone. Mm. You just look at someone and they just get kidney stones. <laughs> That'd be the yellow one. If you haven't read the Infinity Gauntlet, by the way, it's a really, really great series, um, really classic Marvel uh, crossover and, and um, uh, trade paperback, which is available uh, digitally now as well. So you can you can go and read that and bone up on the Infinity Gauntlet, but yeah, that, I, it's, it's a whole lot of MacGuffins, isn't it? It's a whole lot of MacGuffins. It's a whole big world of MacGuffins. And at some point, they're going to have to say which what gem does what, and how it would be a bad idea to get things back together again. And I also get a suspicion that the Earthbound movies that we're going to see in Phase Phase Three won't deal with that sort of stuff because the likes of Captain America and uh, Iron Man, if there is another Iron Man movie, or Ant Man won't really necessarily come into contact with stuff like this. This is this is for the Thors of this world, or this universe, rather. This is for the Thors and the Doctor Stranges, maybe. And, and Yeah, we'll probably see one in Doctor Strange, won't we? Probably that yellow one, that reality one that you said. Yes. Yes, you never know. You never know. So there you go. That's where they are. I'm now going to refer to the Infinity Gauntlet as the MacGuffin Mitten. Throughout all of Empire's discussion of this... Of course, Thanos needs to pick up the MacGuffin Mitten, which has all <laughs> the important space rocks. The McLovin? <laughs> no, Dan, that is ridiculous. Okay, maybe McLovin could get the McLovin. I think the McMitten hmm. would be lovely, and you could have it as a tie-in Happy Meal toy. Hmm. Did anybody else really mind that how does it work in space when you froze and freeze up if you have no air but then you put the mask on and are we underwater here i thought space was like a vacuum and yeah that was that was a, yeah. into blood someone did and i don't oh damn it hang on hang on i've yeah. got a guy who's asking a similar question which is 
Here we go. Steve Sloman from Bristol. He says, Can we assume that Star-Lord's potential cross-alien heritage is how he survived in space with no oxygen or spacesuit when saving Gamora? Were we just supposed to suspend our disbelief at that point? I think I think so. Yes, because of love. I think maybe a little bit of both. I think with that scene, a couple of things are happening. One, that he is making a calculated gamble that Yondu will come and save him just in mm-hmm. time. Told he'll die within seconds. Technically, he survives for seconds, so... He's on the verge of death, I guess, when it happens. And three, it's it's an interesting moment for that character to do something selfless, even with a get-out-of-jail-free card. And as much as I enjoy the prospect of a Quill-Gamora relationship, because I think Zoe Saldana and Chris Pratt have a lot of chemistry, and I really like that scene where he's trying to seduce her with tales of what a hero Kevin Bacon is back on his planet... Um, which is the best thing Kevin Bacon's done in years, <laughs> incidentally. Um, I don't know that I necessarily bought that. That he would do that. That he would potentially die for Gamora at that point in their relationship. Uh, maybe not so much for her. I don't think it's just a very elaborate way of getting into her pants. Well, no, he, he couldn't, could he? Because he'd be dead. Yeah, exactly. No, I just, I just think it's his inherent, you know, selflessness and heroism, which, which is buried under all those mm. layers of um, selfishness and unheroism. I think that he was spending so much time with his apparently same character person, a raccoon, a rocket raccoon, that he decided, sorry, I can't be too much like this guy. I better go do something nice. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You yeah. said it. Shut up. Yeah, it's it's a good moment. It's a nice moment, and I, and I like it. And I like the fact it's undercut almost immediately by the fact he tries to hit on her uh, when, they, when they're in Yondu's, uh, Yondu's ship. Hmm. Uh, here's a question, very interesting one. This is from Andy Deagle. Yes, the Andy Deagle, who uh, asks, Why would Ronan subcontract retrieving the Infinity Stone to a bunch of mercenaries? Why not retrieve it himself or send trusted lieutenants like Gamora or Nebula? I love Andy Deagle. He is the best. For people who don't know who Andy Deagle is... Could someone say who Andy Diggle is? Andy Diggle is a fantastic comic book writer, I guess best known uh, for the losers. Thank you, Chris. Right, I had the same question. Seems to be a lot of subcontracting going on. Thanos, he has two adoptive daughters, he has others. But two of them are working with or for, I think both, Ronan, who has been asked by Thanos to uh-huh. get the orb. When he gets the orb, he should give it to Thanos, and then Thanos in exchange will destroy Xandar. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. So, what Ronan does, instead of going to do it himself, he asks for, essentially, the black market to get the orb for him. Mm-hmm. The black market, as represented by the Quilly guy, uh, in that a small, very lovely Apple Store-type store on Xandar, asks for the scavengers to, or the ravagers rather, to go and get it. So the head of the ravagers is Yondu. Yondu then asks his, not second in command, but his best bud of a sort, his younger protege, Peter Quill, to go and get the orb, which he does by himself with some hot girl that's in his his ship, right? Mm. That is the, what happens, right? What I don't understand is why, at the very top, Thanos just doesn't do it himself. At the very belief that, Ronan, why doesn't he do it himself? Uh-huh. And below that, if Ronan isn't going to do it and Thanos isn't going to do it, why doesn't he get Gamora to go and get the orb? Why does he do this black market? I know the theory is he doesn't want people to know. Mm. He just wants it. If you do it through the black market, then you have this distance where, oh, where's the orb going to? Well, the orb's going to whoever buys it, and there's a kind of a, an inherent secrecy. Also, how important is it? Yeah. If, if, if Ronan or Thanos themselves go after this, this thing, which seems 
innocuous. Yeah, like a, an antique. Yeah, then people will know that it contains something, and then other equally powerful players might come into come into the picture. Yeah, also, I think they're just lazy. Mm. Frankly, Thanos is clearly lazy, and also super glued to his throne. He can't get out. How's he going to get out? The uh, other's dead now. How uh, is he going to get out? Maybe that's the next film. It's just Thanos struggling. It's like buried for 90 minutes. I felt um, so sorry for... Can you remember his name? What is the character's name? Who is the other servant to Ronan? Korath, the accuser. The accuser? <laughs> no. Korath, the, the hunter? Pursuer. Korath, the pursuer. Korath. Yeah. He's never called the pursuer on, on, on no. film. He's called Korath. No. Yeah, I suspect there's a lot more Jaiman Honsu on the, uh, on the cutting room floor as has well. Has to be. Has to be. He has that one scene where there's the Indiana Jones gag... And then... We don't see him again for about 85 minutes. By the way, I love the little bits of tech that uh, the Peter Quill has. He has the little, um, like, mm. a bit like a Singularities from uh, Mass Effect, where you throw a trap on the floor. It's like a Ghostbusters mm. trap. You threw it on the floor, and then all of the, like, five people are suddenly... It's actually, like, a less powerful version of what the Dark Elves use mm. in uh, Thor The Dark World, because they, they, they actually completely squish you and kill you, whereas well, my, his one just pulls you to it. It's a my, small trap. Magnetism thing. Yeah, it's magnets. It was a it attracted. Yeah, so much of this movie it, yeah. is magnets. I think. magnets, bitch, bloody magnets. Uh, yeah, so there is a very complicated work structure here, and I think there must be Janeth the secretary, or if we're being honest, <laughs> maybe <laughs> Pete the secretary. It doesn't have to be a lady who's in charge of all this and making sure that uh, you know people are getting paid and that Thanos, uh, you know, isn't done for tax. It's it's an established thing. You have a big bad who doesn't get their hands dirty. It's a traditional bad guy problem. Yeah. Stop getting other people to do your dirty work. Isn't the answer, obviously, it would be a much shorter film. It certainly would if, be a less complicated film. Thanos went and got mm. it himself. Because then he'd go, oh, I've got it now. Well, that's a movie over. <laughs> but the thing is, it's one of those one of those fun things about having a MacGuffin at the centre of, you know, this idea of crosses and double crosses and what have you. So Yondu was planning to double cross Ronan. Not, maybe not directly, but he was planning to do his own thing with this thing. And then Peter double crosses Yondu, doesn't he? Because he dives out on his own, gets ahead of them and grabs the orb first, which kicks the whole plot into gear. Mm. So, you know, you've got a bit of that kind of those conventions going around it, which which I think is fine, you know, and you you, you follow the, the, the trace of motivations till you get to the big bad guy, don't you? As he says, as Peter Quill himself says, it's got a bit of a Ark of the Covenant Maltese Falcon vibe about it. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be a nice get out. Because, you know, Maltese Falcon, does that make any sense? <laughs> Not a huge amount. Yeah. And obviously we know, you know, Ark of the Covenant, everything would have turned out the same if Indiana Jones had just stayed home. Yeah, let's not think about that. Uh, same with the Big Sleep. Look at the Big Sleep. What the hell? Why do mm. people die? It's all a mess. Mm. Don't know. Don't is know, that, but it's great. Is that true about Indy, really, when you think about it? <laughs> do we want to get into that? I don't know. Do we, not, not probably not at this point. Yeah. This is the Godzilla probably. conundrum. What yeah. if there weren't any humans? Yeah. Well, well, well. So, okay, Ark of the Covenant, just quickly. Nazis want it, Nazis get it, Nazis open it, get killed by God at the end. If Indy weren't there, then... um. But if Indy weren't there, then it would just be sitting in the desert. At least he gets it taken back to uh, America land. It gets even worse because Indy actually reveals where the Ark is. To the Nazis. To the Nazis. Mm. He does, that's right. Yeah, so they probably wouldn't have got it to start with if it wasn't for yeah, Indy. Exactly, and the same thing with Godzilla. They wouldn't have had a bomb become a problem if the humans hadn't tried to kill the Godzilla with a bomb. Idiots. Idiots. Humans are idiots. How will we ever learn? Top men. Top men. Uh, right, just very, very quickly, I'm going to race through some other ones. Ross Bishop asks a question I think we've kind of answered. Uh, Marvel's saying quite about a Guardians Avengers crossover. Uh, it seems inevitable, doesn't it? Uh, the I think Avengers. Avengers 3. That'll happen, won't it? Guardians coming to Earth. 
20 main characters in a movie. Chris Pratt's pitch is that he just walks up to... Uh, he was joking about this with me. <laughs> Bunch of lads, me and him. Uh, the, uh, the Iron Man will be just, you know, Tony Stark's lying by the pool, sipping a mojito. And then, because he's been cracking onto Gamora, because mm. he's that kind of cad, Peter Will just walks up to him with his blaster and pops one in his head. Whoa, that's... Um... And, and it was a fu- apparently a fun conversation he was having with James Gunn when they were travelling around. Just going, come on, let's do it, guys, let's do it. And he kept saying, look, I wasn't going to tell anybody this, but I might as well, because really... They're never going to make it happen. But wouldn't it be great if I just killed him in like the first five minutes? <laughs> I, I would like to see it done in a Shaun of the Dead style. So the Avengers, whatever, they've they got their adventure. And they were sort of like going down this alleyway and then come the other direction, the Guardians of the Galaxy. And they were stopping. Oh, oh hey, how you doing? Hulk and Drax, high five. I'll just, just, just do that. And, okay. and, then, and then the Avengers carrying on that direction, the Guardians carrying on in that direction. Amazing. And then they repeat the joke the other way around, you see. In um, in Avengers three, we, we probably should wrap up after that. There's nowhere to go. Uh, just very very quick questions. Uh, ben Miller, hopefully not. Uh, well, the maybe Miller. it is. Maybe, maybe it is the, the Ben Miller. The Ben Miller because it's yeah. not a common name. It's not a common name. It's not a no. common name. No, his full name. If you haven't read it properly. Is Ben the Miller? Ben the Miller. Uh, out of Armstrong and the Miller. What was your favorite scene? The opening sequence, the opening credits by a long way. When he jumps over the little ravine and just presses the buttons on his boots and doesn't quite get it right and goes, whoa, and then lands it. My favourite scene was uh, uh, Drax saying, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too quick. I would catch it. I also loved, and we talked about this in the interview, the uh, Quill moment. Um, not Peter Quill, but the small knitting needle of doom that Yondu uses. It's with, an arrow. With the, uh, yeah. If you what, look at the original character, he has a bow yeah, and arrow. I, I, but I, it's better if you I'm, think it's a knitting needle. I'm per- what I was doing, what I was doing, Dan. Oh, sorry, Ali. Did I spoil your gag? It, wasn't, it was just a little bit of whimsy. A little bit of whimsy. Start again. We should know by now when Dan enters the pod booth, whimsy goes out the window. I love the uh, the prison break sequence, the kiln, the whole thing. You know, I love that shot of... Uh, of Rocket explaining his plan and what he needs while in the background Groot goes off and gets it because Groot is essentially an idiot. I just thought that whole thing came together really, really nicely. And other favourite scenes? Yeah, I liked um I, I liked little things like the the montage. And I liked I love the uh, the bit where um they're on a uh, Ronan's ship and Drax basically says, I'm so glad to be your friend you know, Quill, I'm your friend, and he grouped this dumb tree and this green whore. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such this a... Is it. Drax, I <laughs> think. Drax, everyone's like, oh, Groot's great and Rocket this and everything. I think, for me, the big surprise and the big joy of the film was Drax, and I thought Dave Bautista was, you know, absolutely great in the role. Mm. And I think he's a really funny character. Yeah. Um, the, the way he kind of talks in this kind of cod, highfalutin, fantasies kind of style and has no sense of humour or sense of metaphor or, or anything irony. like that yeah, yeah. And, and I just think I mean normally that's the job of a robot in the sci-fi universe to do that but I think it just worked perfectly and I love the fact also that he was so um, so actually quite verbose and, and has a really sort of wide vocabulary mm. uh, like, coming like, out of this huge muscle machine it's like a very very worthy knight yeah yeah, uh, I uh, you know the jokes write themselves. You go, oh, there are no flies on him. You could see someone saying, and then he'll go, no, there are no flies on me. Mm. You know, it's he, honestly any mm. bit of idiom. It just you know, obviously you could write it funnier than that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know for me, I actually got more. I got more enjoyment out of that character, I think, than any of the others. I think he's great. I also love the uh, the way he when he when he goes into battle, whether it's punching people or when they're crashing through uh, Ronan's ship at the end. He's he just finds it all hilarious. Mm. He's such a warrior that he just loves going to the battle. It just makes him laugh. It's like it's like an episode of Armstrong and Miller. You laugh 
a lot. Armstrong and the Miller. Armstrong, <laughs> Armstrong and the Miller. And the last question is from Josh Barton, uh, who sounds like he could be a hero in the Marvel Universe. Uh, who was your favourite member? You, Dan, you've kind of answered it. Who's Drax. your favourite member and why? Drax. Drax. Ali? Nebula. Uh, no, my favourite member would be... That's because you fancy Karen Gillan. Mm, she is great, actually. She's very good. She's, She's very really good. good in this show. I love the way she, uh, you know, just talked to Thanos. You know, that sort mm. of bored thanks dad kind of way, and yeah. just saunters off in a very sexy sachet. I think my favorite she sachet as well is uh, is still uh, still Chris Pratt, still Peter Quill, Star Lord. He's he is Mister Charm, and he's charmed me, and um, I'm in love. You seem to have written your initials in a big heart mm. while we've been doing this. Is that mm. is that fair to say, or is that something I've just made up? Who knows? No. We'll never know. I think it's I think it's really fun. Uh, this other stuff we haven't talked about. The production design, I think, is great throughout. Consistently surprising, um, which for a space movie where you think you've seen every every conceivable ship, every conceivable planet, uh, I thought this actually has some nice surprises. I know nowhere is from the comics, but it was an arresting image seeing a a city built inside a giant floating skull. Haven't seen that before in the big screen. True that. True. That uh, I thought the characters worked, the emotion, as I said, got me. The humour is there as well. I think it's a fantastic film, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see these guys again. Twenty seventeen, July twenty eighth, two thousand seventeen. Is it that soon? It's that soon. Is it? We only that have to wait three years. Excellent. Three years to see the Guardians uh, of the Galaxy again, and that is it for our Guardians of the Galaxy supporter special thank you so much for sending in all your questions we were deluged with questions um, and uh, most of them are very very good uh, sorry if we didn't get around to answering yours uh, our next supporter special has yet to be determined it could well be Interstellar it could <gasps> well be Mockingjay Part 1 it could well be The Hobbit The Battle of the Five Armies it could even be Kingsman The Secret Service we don't know we'll let you know when we know until then it is goodbye from Dan farewell it's goodbye from Ali I prefer Ali the Plum. Ali the Plum. The way I say it sounds more like Winnie the Pooh. Ali the Plumber. Ali the Plumber. Dan the what? What would you be? Hmm? What would you be? D- what do you mean? Definite, Dan definite the... article Dan. Hmm? Definite article Dan. Dan. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me think. Dan the Hesute. Dan, Dan the Quick Sharp Improviser. Dan Dan the Whimsy <laughs> Destroyer. Dan, look, look, come on. It's, All right, it's, okay. I haven't had my lunch. My All blood right. sugar level is low, okay? All right. Okay, Dan the Grumpy. How about that? Dan says bye. All right, Jesus. I'm Ali the Plum or Ali the Plumber. You're yeah. Chris the... Uh, the Podder. I pod. I do pods. I like to pod. I pod in a pod. I, so. like, I like to pod. Everybody does. Yeah. I am pod. This is oh, getting that's, that's this, sweet. Is, this is getting silly now. Yeah. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank bye. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.